Hello there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host for this segment. Today, we are speaking with John Brandt, CEO and founder of the MPI Group. John is an internationally renowned expert on manufacturing and technology with more than two decades experience devoted to studying leadership and effective purpose-driven organizations, as well as how companies can adapt themselves to today's new markets, corporate structures, and customer demands. John's work at MPI Group has produced the six strategies for next generation manufacturing success and studies on manufacturing performance benchmarking, distribution and logistics, and manufacturer's readiness for the Internet of Things. Before founding the MPI Group in 2003, John was publisher and editor-in-chief of Industry Week magazine, which under his leadership garnered more than 70 editorial awards for excellence and doubled its revenues. He led the development of several pioneering research efforts, including the Industry Week 1000, the World's Best Managed Companies Program, and the IW Census of Manufacturers. John also served as President, Publisher, and Editorial Director of Chief Executive. A short list of activities John has been involved in includes the Manufacturing Extension Partnership National Advisory Board, co-chair of the Northeast Ohio Product Innovation Initiative, and president of the Press Club of Cleveland. He is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Case Western Reserve University, where he received the James Dysart McGee Award in Economics. John, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned to you before, this interview's been a long time coming, and uh, I know you have a lot on your plate, so I, I thank you for the time to uh, uh, sit down and, and talk. Delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. MPI Group conducts the biannual MPI Manufacturing Study, uh, Internet of Things and Distribution and Logistics Reports, which touches a broad swath of manufacturing topics and issues. Uh, looking over the horizon, what is your perspective on the status of manufacturing today? Um, it is a really, really exciting time to be in manufacturing and also terrifying, mm -hmm. I think. And exciting because we are still in a very long recovery in the U.S. and in many other parts of the world. And there are lots of great things happening and lots of new opportunities using the Internet of Things, using improvement methodologies. That said, I think over the next five to ten years, we are going to see amazing changes in what these technologies do to the way that we manage our manufacturing firms. And there are going to be some clear winners and some clear losers, depending on uh, which trends you're looking at. And that brings us to the annual Internet of Things survey conducted in 2016 and 2017. Uh, first of all, a uh, lot of definitions of IoT out there. Uh, what is yours, and how do you see a distinction between IoT and the industrial Internet of Things? I don't know that I see a difference as much as there's a lot of different flavors. There's a lot of different names for this. Industry 4.0, mm -hmm. um, the Internet of Things, Industrial Internet of Things. Some of it is our real differences in the way people are viewing things. Some of it's marketing because there are some different consortiums put, trying to put out their own, uh, their own names for this. Right. You had the Connected Enterprise. You, you have Smart Factory. There, yes. an, an enormous number of those. It's all the same thing to us. And I think where we might distinguish the Internet of Things as being a little bit broader than the industrial Internet of Things is when people are talking about the industrial Internet of Things, they're generally talking about how do we use the Internet of Things to connect industrial processes, machines, et cetera, machine-to-machine -machine communications, machine-to-enterprise, et cetera. The way we see that is that the Internet of Things also encompasses smart products and intelligent products. 
And one of the reasons that manufacturing is so exciting right now and so terrifying is the fact that there's an opportunity for manufacturers to not only use the Internet of Things within their facilities, within their supply chains to connect uh, machines and decision-making, but also there's an opportunity to create smart products. And those smart products are going to do a lot of new things for customers. They're going to require a lot of new um, thinking and a lot of new capabilities from the manufacturers themselves. It lends itself to new business models, but not everybody's ready. For example, we were in Ada, Ohio last year and visited the Wilson Sportings Good Company, and they ha they had produced a smart football that was Bluetooth enabled. Absolutely. There's a lot of examples of that, and it's, it's interesting right now that if you look at uh, the way manufacturers are using the Internet of Things, the way we would define it, where we, we see it as being on, we call it both sides of the house. There's inside, and then there's the products you create. And, you know, as we know, just to, for definitionally, the Internet of Things, for most of the age of computing, human beings had to enter the information or somehow process the information. The difference now, and this, this term, Internet of Things, was coined in 1999 in the Harvard Business Review. And for a number of years, it was this theoretical thing where machines could collect data, share data, and make decisions, not artificial intelligence, but, you know, it would be programmed decisions, could make these decisions without human intervention. And it wasn't really possible until the last several years. What's striking about your, your example about the football and, and, and so many other cool products that we're seeing out there and uses is how quickly this is happening right now. We did this uh, 2000 uh, study of the Internet of Things among manufacturers in 2016, 2017. We did it because we did our manufacturing study the year before that, and we just threw in a question about, you know, how much do you know about the Internet of Things? And just for fun, being snarky researchers, we threw in uh, never heard of it as one of the answers for the Internet of Things. And we had 43% of manufacturers at that point say they had never heard of it. Flip Fast forward then, two years later, we do the 2017 study, and we have the majority of manufacturers say they, are, they made more money in the last year because of the Internet of Things both in terms of products and in terms of using it internally. This is just, I don't even know how to, how to convey how fast a change that is. That was incredibly dramatic to, to read what you did in 2016 and then to see the complete turn around, even you know, the, the dramatic change between those who weren't doing anything and then those at the top of those who are completely on board and, and using, using IoT. It's, it, it's really interesting. Um, when I'm out talking to manufacturers, whether at conferences, et cetera, two, three years ago you would talk about this, and it would be a new concept, especially in the smaller and mid-sized firms, which generally always adopt at a slower pace, in part because lack of money, et cetera, or lack of resources. And then the questions gradually change to, well, okay, so who are the two or three companies we should call? As if the IoT was an, a utility that you would sign up for. Like, oh, IoT me. Uh, IoT, my, uh, IoT my operations. And now what we're seeing is it's an accepted way of doing business at many firms. You know, the adoption rate is still higher among your, your, your multinationals, your, your very large firms. But the technology is becoming more pervasive. The technology is becoming more pervasive. It's less expensive. There are more opportunities for everybody to do this. And, and just incredible opportunities to put a sensor on a machine. There's, there's things now 
with the software going on now and with the right sensors, it's actually going to change the way we financially analyze a manufacturing firm. Just one example of that. For years, uh, I don't know, 100 years, 150 years in a manufacturing factory, energy was an overhead cost, right? Mm -hmm. you just, what, how are, it, just, it just took that. Well, if you can track your energy use, which you now can, by machine, by line, et cetera, all of a sudden you're tracking it with enough granularity that you can add it to the bill of materials. And if you add it to the bill of materials, then all of a sudden it's a variable cost, not a fixed or overhead cost. And then once you do that, if you've got the right an an analytics, you can figure out, well, should I be making it on this machine? Should I be making it in this facility? If I'm making it in an area where there's variable pricing electricity in certain seasons because of air conditioning, maybe I should be running this product at night. True. There's a whole, we are just now at the beginning of understanding that it's not just making it all work better, it's going to give us more opportunities and more choices going forward. So the top two aspects that the manufacturers outlined that they were using this in was uh, plant and processes implementation, and then the second was product, right? That, yes. I mean, that's how we look at it. Mm -hmm. but that's the, and, and in both of those areas, we saw manufacturers, the majority, saying that they had made more money in the last year because mm -hmm. of that. Now, it was interesting, I want to say on the product side, that we also asked people what their, their margin was on their products. And it was really interesting that we found that at least right now, even though people are making more money because of the Internet of Things and, they, and a significant number, uh, percentage, significant percentage of products are being launched that are Internet of Things enabled, meaning they're smarter, they have intelligence, they're sensor embedded in them. The margins on those products are not as high yet as the margins on the products they've been making. Our theory, it's a hypothesis, our theory is that it's just these are early days. And typically when you launch a product early on, you're still, you're still folding in a lot of development costs, you're still sorting things out. And I think that will, stay, that will increase and those two will come together over a period of time. But the point for, that we, we've been making to manufacturers is that there are people making money at this right now, even if the margins are slightly lower because you're still just dipping your toe in the water. So what distinguishes them, those who are riding the wave and making the profits from those who are staying behind? Um, we found a number of different things. What's interesting about the IoT is, and where this has become not just something to talk about or not just marketing hype, which it was for a while, it seemed like, or at least it seemed like that to people, is that it is much like any other initiative or technology that's been adopted within manufacturing. First of all, you look at those people uh, and those facilities and uh, companies where they have a, uh, a good understanding of the IoT. Over half of those who are making money on profiting from uh, Internet of Things products have that understanding versus just 14% of others. They are also, it's like anything else, if you have a plan, you're going to do better than if you don't have a plan. And what we found, we said, hey, do you have an IoT strategy? And what we found over and over again is that over half of those who are making money have, an, have implemented their strategy to put uh, sensors or intelligence into their products. Only 16% of other manufacturers have done that. And then, so they understand it, they're aware of it, they um, have a plan, and guess what? They invest more. The ones who are making money on IoT-enabled products, 72% of them had invested over 5% of sales. That's a big number. Over 5% of their sales last year into embedding IoT technologies into their products. Only 14% of other manufacturers did that. Hmm. There's huge differences here. And they're generating sales. They're getting more, more of their sales. They're, they're moving their product margins up. It's just 
this is how you do it. This is how you do it with anything in business is, you know, it's a great new thing. You got to understand it. You got to create a plan. You got to invest in it and then go. And in any of that, was there any talk about culture change? You know, that, you know, being able to get buy-in from those who are on the floor that this is coming that is a great question, and there's a, a, a couple of, uh, couple of uh, factors of that I'd like to discuss. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we found was when we asked people, for example, whether it was using the Internet of Things in their plants and processes or in products, we said, what is the biggest challenge you face? You know, even if you think this is great and you're not doing it, what's the biggest challenge? And for two years in a row, for both of those things, the biggest challenge was figuring out the benefits or what we should do. It was really ideation or understanding it or understand, knowing that this is a way it's going to go, but how does that work in our industry? I've heard this question over and over again. Uh, yeah, the Internet of Things sounds great, but what are we going to do with our products or how do our processes work? And usually that's just a lack of going out and investigating other companies or benchmarking or exploring or being creative about your business model, which we'll come back to. The other issue that we're seeing with firms specifically on implementing the IoT within their within their plants and processes, et cetera, is that anybody who does this generally finds out that for years and years and years they've had two technology departments. They did they may not have realized it. They have their operations technology, they have the people who are working on the machinery and the engineering and the systems out in the plant, and then you got the IT department. And what we found in both years of the study is that is two groups of smart people and they don't get along very well. Hmm. Um, they don't, and there's like only one or two things where the two groups over at over 50% of companies, they actually collaborate on. So there, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, they were kind of disconnected before at this point, they're starting to have to work together because you can't really be collecting data on machines and using it there and then adding it into your ERP system or into your analytics without having those two groups work together. But there's also a cultural issue in that IT has generally been seen as the preferred career, maybe a little bit more, you know, white collar or something. And so there's a cultural difference. What is going to be key for companies who do this um, on their, in their plants, in their manufacturing facilities, making all this work together, those two groups are going to have to work together and probably meld in some way. Because as of right now, you just can't go out and find, oh, get me the IoT engineer. You know, it, it requires a lot of different skills and a lot of pe- different people have to work together. Exactly. It's, a, it's along the lines of get me the added manufacturing engineer. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I'll take, yeah I'll, take, I'll take three of the 3D guys. Yes. Which companies are, do, I mean, do you have any examples of companies that are actually doing this well? There's a lot of examples out there. Um, uh, you know, we've seen Rockwell Automation has done it internally, has done a lot, and then, they, of course, they've now productized that to take their experience out into the market. Um, we have, uh, there's a, a Siemens factory in Hamburg, Germany, I believe, where um, they've got about a thousand, I think, operate machines, et cetera, that are fairly autonomously operated. And the part actually has an ID on it. The, the, what they're making has an ID on it. It goes through, it tells each machine in turn what to do to it. And then also allows with that part, with that tracking, there's traceability then, of course, throughout the life of the product. So we're getting closer and closer to what we've talked about for 40 years, the lights out factory, mm-hmm. where, you know, in theory, in theory, you know, you could just let it run by itself. That's we're not there yet, but we're seeing closer and closer examples of that. Seeing a couple of factories like that here. 
I am sure you have. <laughs> yes. Uh, much of the research Mike has conducted on manufacturing 5.0, you talked about all the different definitions, so we're trying to define the, the next generation of manufacturing innovation. And uh, uh, Ned Hill, my faculty colleague, says that uh, they actually uh, the industry 4.0, the Germans couldn't count because they didn't take into fa- to consideration the electric motor drive as one of the uh, one of the revolutions. So, um, but we we're realizing that larger companies are the only ones who can afford the technology and expertise to support the digitization of the workplace. And you mentioned this earlier on in our conversation. Do you think that rings true to your observations? I would say no. And and the reason, I, I think, in a narrow, in, in, in one sense, it, and it's going to depend on how you define digitization. Mm-hmm. If it is we're going to completely digitize our factory, um, make sure that all of our PLCs and controllers, everything's been updated. We're collecting data in real time. We're getting reports back in real time. That can that be very expensive? Absolutely. And especially if you're coordinating multiple operations in a plant or a supply chain. So yes, that is still probably going to be the province of, of, let's just say, companies with lots of capital, which tend to be large companies. That said, there are so many other use cases for the IoT. And where we have seen people do interesting work with the IoT is that not necessarily trying to eat the whole elephant at once. It is the idea of let's launch something in one area or one machine or one area, do that, learn that. And what we have generally seen is that people can generate enough savings there to help pay for the next project. And that is, I think, how small and mid-sized companies will fund this. Plus, it's also, what are you trying to do? It's, it's, and it, it, to, to the point I made earlier, it's not just about the factory. It's about how do you start embedding sensors into your products? Because, for example, there are tire companies right now who are embedding sensors into the tires. Um, and then once you can start doing that, and if you start putting the IoT into, for example, the machinery that you're creating, well, that creates a new business model opportunity. Um, Especially if you're connecting with the civil engineering firms who are developing the sensors to be placed on the roads. Absolutely. But even even to the point of... You know, one of the interesting business models of the last 20 or 30 years has been what General Electric and Rolls-Royce did with jet engines. There's, I don't know if there's an airline in the world that owns their own engines. You know, GE and Rolls-Royce own the engines. Airlines pay them for uptime. And so they have sensors, that, an early adopter of IoT, so they can actually be fixing the engine while you're flying over the Pacific. And it was an important innovation for the airlines in terms of finance. It, it turned an overhead cost into a variable cost because they're paying for uptime. It gave GE, Rolls-Royce, other people like that, the opportunity to have a long-term relationship with a customer, including maintenance and service. And because it's a competitive industry, you really can't make money in the long term on jet engines unless you're doing the maintenance and service and the parts for them. Well, that was jet engines. If you're making a piece of machinery now um, that's got sensors in it, you could be putting that in your customer's plant. And instead of them buying it or leasing it from you, you could be selling them uptime. And then you just go to, and we see all kinds of consumer examples of this. There's a, I think it's a company called Zodiac Aqualink. They have an, they have an internet-enabled thing where you put it in your pool and you got your iPhone and you're driving home from work, you're at a light, and you're like, oh, I think I'd like the pool to be 80 degrees when I get there or whatever. And you click it and it warms up the pool. Okay, that, that seems like an indulgence, right? Except if you're a pool maintenance company or you're a property maintenance company and all of a sudden you have sensors and you can be maintaining 
all that. Oh, with the touch of a button. At the touch of a button and checking it and allowing you to um, direct your workforce where they need to do maintenance now, where they need to do maintenance later. There's other examples. There's a company called, uh, I think it's called SteadyServe or SteadyKeg. SteadyServe, I think is what it's called. They uh, have a service where they put internet sensors, IoT sensors on beer kegs. All right. And so the reason they do this, the guy who's founded this was a brewer, had a brew pub, and he quit that to do this because one of the big issues that you have if you are running a bar is that the way people for 100 years have figured out if there's anything left in the keg is you shake it. Yes. And, you know, the same way people did in college. Um, Well, the problem is, is that you can generally throw out, a lot of times you throw out 10 or 15% of what's left. So if you have this sensor and you know how much the keg weighs and the sensor and there's a little scale in the bar, it is feeding data back. So A, the bar owner knows when the keg is actually empty. So they know, A, they sell extra beer. It's like free money. B, they, are, they know when they need to order. The data is then fed back to SteadyServe, who knows, who then uses the data with the breweries and the distributors where they know what to order. They also know which beers sell better together versus other beers. It's just, this is what I'm trying to stress here is that it's not just the plant floor. And mm-hmm. probably the bigger opportunity is how if you had a stream of information from your customer on how they were using the product and you could continuously work with them to update their software and help them out, what would that do to your profitability? What does a manufacturer look like 15 years from now? Uh, yet when you uh, the latest survey <clears throat> that you had, you know, it's, uh, the um, percentages of manufacturers concerned about connecting the production level systems to the consumer fa- facing systems seem to be much lower. Um, yes, because we are still in early days. That, but that's my hypothesis. I don't know. I, gotta, I could go out and ask all of them. But that's my hypothesis <laughs> is we are in early days. This is, I mean, and there's so much. Ch- I mean, we've got this. We've got additive. And that's going to, you know, we, and we've just... We're just, we've just now, manufacturing's just now and distribution and logistics has just now sort of recovered from the big disruption when all of a sudden manufacturers could go direct to some customers. And we all had to make, and everybody had to make a decision on would they continue to use distributors or not. So we're in a, we're in a, a three or four decade period of very rapid technologically induced change for not just manufacturing the processes, but the relationships between all the players. I was intending on bringing up cybersecurity, but now, you know, given that we're, we're talking about these, um, uh, a lot of these co- connected machines, connected devices oh, on the shop issue. floor, uh, not just with cybersecurity, but now I'm, I'm wondering if there would be, is there going to be any, um, uh, anything resulting from the recent net neutrality um, breakup? You know, I have not. I, I do wonder about that myself. I haven't actually given enough thought since right. it happened yesterday. To well, let's talk about cybersecurity so, then. So, but cybersecurity is is an enormous issue, um, and it, but it's an enormous issue in multiple ways. First of all, if you're starting to connect up your factory to the internet, you know, all of a sudden you have geometrically uh, multiplied the number of access points for hackers and and evildoers. And one of the problems that people will have as they do this is that as they start to do this, you have a number of PLCs, controllers, different things that are not up to current security standards. And so even identifying where all those weaknesses are can be difficult. Combine that with the fact that um, you've got an enormous number of employees who are accessing corporate data, 
uh, on their own devices. And we still see lots and lots of companies that don't have a bring your own device policy or security policy, which is just asking for trouble. No honestly. firewalls with that. And you, well, they don't know, you know. Um, so, so that that's one issue. The other issue, though, is that imagine this. So, so we're your manufacturer. You're doing all this here, and then you're also starting to put up, make some of these smart products. Well, all of a sudden, you probably don't have a software department programmers. So a lot of people are going to source that, get somebody. And how good are the people who are doing the code for you? And is it custom code? Is it secure? Is it, uh, is it generic? And then the other thing that happens is that you start becoming, as a manufacturer, once you start putting software into your products or into the relationship, all of a sudden you need to be updating that software. And so it can be a new business model, exciting, more revenues, but there are a lot of things that can go wrong if you don't do this the right way. It's already been demonstrated uh, multiple times. Most cars uh, with a dedicated hacker, with somebody who knows what they're doing, can mm-hmm. be stopped in the middle of the road. There are people who've, you know, they're, you know, they're, we have internet-enabled washing machines, refrigerators, baby monitors, and most of those can be hacked as well. So, and what is the liability component of that for a manufacturer? I'm, Many questions. Yes, lots of questions. And but lots of opportunity, too. Yeah, <laughs> lots of potential business opportunities out there, folks. Um, if Well, you'll probably be heading into the 2018 Internet of Things study pretty we, soon. We are looking at that or digitization. We may just go broader to digitization because IoT was the hot topic a couple of years ago. Now everyone's talking about digitization and going perhaps even broader. Um, we're also looking at uh, potentially looking at uh, studies on artificial intelligence or blockchain next year. Um, I'm personally fascinated with uh, additive manufacturing 3D right now uh, as a technology in and of itself, but also I'm trying to imagine 10 years from now, if you're an OEM, are you going to be want, do you want to store inventories of uh, spare parts? Or are you going to just have the IP and if you can print a number of those parts where you just print them on demand, or maybe you're licensed the IP to a distributor in another part of the world, and maybe they'll print the part for you. But then what does that do to quality and liability, et cetera? Because if you can print it anywhere, why would you carry the inventory? Exactly. I mean, I've been in plants with all of their their dye mm-hmm. on racks and racks. Racks and racks and racks, and it's expensive. And then shipping stuff is expensive, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you look, you know, it, um, this has been one of the, we talked about changes in the relationship between distributors and, and uh, manufacturers. If you look at uh, one of the fastest growing brands over the last 20 years has been the brand called generically private label. As, as distributors got into especially light manufacturing and actually would compete in some ways with some of their uh, some of the manufacturers, at least assembly and then maybe even light manufacturing. So if that's already happened in other industries and all of a sudden you have this new technology, why wouldn't you at least consider that as a distributor? True. Wrapping all of that up into <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> into uh, a, some general advice. W- what would you tell small and medium-sized firms as they head into this nascent world, a nascent world of technology and connected enterprise and additive manufacturing and all of that? 
Well, a couple things. First of all, don't eat, don't try to eat the whole elephant at once. And these technologies are becoming more and more affordable. And I would say that small and mid-sized companies often, manufacturers often have an advantage because they are nimbler, because they have less layers, because you're not turning this enormous oil tanker of a firm. You've got you know something more nimble. And if you can start specific projects and do the, use those to pay for the next project. We've seen some small and mid-sized companies do some very interesting stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like jujitsu. You're never gonna have the big budgets that some of the large ones do, but you can use what you have as an advantage. And I think there's a huge opportunity for these firms with uh, the IoT, with the digitization, can't even say it, digitization, <laughs> a huge opportunity with digitization. And I can't wait to see what happens next because it's, a, it's just, it's such an exciting time to be in manufacturing. It is indeed. John, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a delight.